Last week we talked about how Peter ended up realizing who Jesus actually was at this place called Caesarea Philippi. And so we ended last week in Mark chapter 8. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Matthew's account of this exact same thing is actually a little bit more detailed because Mark doesn't quite give all the details that Matthew gives. And what happens is that you see Peter being with Jesus and the rest of the disciples in this region called Caesarea Philippi. Now this part of the region was very wicked and there was a certain type of worship that happened in Caesarea Philippi. One of the pantheon of the gods that were worshiped as uh, one of these false gods was the God of Pan. And the center of Pan worship was actually located in the region of Caesarea Philippi. If you have ever heard of the instrument, a pan flute, have you ever perhaps heard of that? This was actually the instrument that was named after the God Pan who would use this flute to lure people into basically his trap to be able to take advantage of them. And there was all sorts of sexual worship around the God of Pan. And so the region of that temple was in Caesarea Philippi. And where that temple was, there was this cave there as well that still exists today that you can actually look up if you want to see pictures of it, do a little research. You can visit this cave. And this cave was the center of Pan worship where once someone would die, they would be cast into this cave because there were a lot of underground rivers where this cave was and people believed that was a pathway to the underworld and they believed this was literally a passage to Hades itself and so what would often be said of this place at Caesarea Philippi is that it would be called the gates of Hades or the gates of hell this is where Jesus shows himself to Peter. Peter's eyes are open. He says, you're not just another prophet. Like some people say, you're not just like Elijah, John the Baptist, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He said, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. He said, but my father who's in heaven showed this to you. He said, now from this day forward, we're going to call you Peter. He said, upon this revelation of me as the Christ, my church is going to be built and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. What a powerful statement in this region to make this proclamation to say, this is who I am. And you would think after such an amazing proclamation of Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, that the disciples would get it, especially Peter, but they don't really fully understand who he is because they've got their own lenses, they've got their own glasses, they've got their own presuppositions, and they've placed all of this on Jesus of who they think that he is and what they think he has come to do. And Jesus repeatedly over these chapters that we're going to read today tries to tell them why he's come and what he is to do. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 8. Let's reread just those few verses and then we'll continue to read through verse 37. Mark 8 verse 27 says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And so Jesus wanted to know, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, he said, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that he, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come up after me, 
and let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his own life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here we see in this moment, Peter goes from having this revelation. You're the Christ. And then Jesus is like, and I'm going to die. And he's like, no, 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 no. Come here, Jesus. <laughs> like, no, no, no. This is, this is not a good look for you, okay? Because you have to think about where exactly Jesus is, uh, the day and the time and what all's going on in the minds of the disciples to where Jesus enters into the story of history. So these guys are just a few hundred years fresh off of the Maccabean Wars, and they have heard the stories of freedom and liberation, and now they find themselves in the context of a culture where the, Roman, the Romans have taken over their freedoms, basically, and they're living under Roman occupation and under Roman government and Roman authority. And so in their minds, they're thinking, this is like the time of the Maccabees. This is going to be our revolutionary warrior, our nationalistic revolutionary warrior king who's going to bring freedom and who's going to establish his kingdom here in Jerusalem. And we're going to overthrow those nasty Romans and anyone who tries to oppose us. And he's going to set up his kingdom. So when he's talking about the kingdom, when he's talking about authority, they're thinking all of this stuff here on earth for their benefit during their time. And then all of a sudden he says, wow, this is the promised one. This is the Messiah, the prophesied one who's going to be our, our savior, our liberator, just like Moses led all of the captives away from uh, Egypt and led them into the promised land. Our Messiah, our savior is going to come and lead us free and establish and set up his kingdom. And he's like, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works because you have to understand that the idea of an individual rising from the dead didn't make sense to them because the way that they understood resurrection would have been from the prophecies that Daniel gave in Daniel chapter four. And they thought this was some sort of end of days thing that the resurrection of the dead would be like the end of days, all people rising from the dead. And so for one man to die and be raised from the dead didn't make sense to them. And so they're arguing with Jesus and beginning to doubt because they're seeing things, but then they're hearing things that don't fit their box, that don't fit their boundaries. And it's a good thing that you and I don't put any presuppositions on Jesus or put Jesus in a box. It's good. It was just the disciples back then, right? <laughs> we're doing the same thing today that the disciples were doing to Jesus back then. We put all of our ideas on to Jesus and we put all these restrictions and boundaries of how we think he's supposed to operate. I wanna help you out just a little bit today. Some people get really nervous when they watch the news and they're like, oh, it's the end times and they see all these things happen and they try to figure out and piece all these things together and they say, well, this person represents this person in scripture and, and this political figure represents this person and they get all up in arms and they're watching the news and they're trying to figure it all out. Hey, the disciples and the religious leaders of Jesus day tried to do the exact same thing and guess what, they were wrong. Amen or oh me. They were wrong because what happens is often we try to figure it all out. That's not the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is not for you to figure it out and be the smartest person in the room because you read a pamphlet or some blog, right? 
or watched someone on YouTube or even did a bunch of research. No, no, listen, it's not for us to figure out. The purpose of prophecy is to confirm what God is doing, that it's indeed from God. That's the purpose of prophecy. You can see a perfect example of this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit falls, they were meeting in the upper room. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And people were hearing the word of God being declared and Jesus being glorified in their own national language. And they thought, what on earth is going on? Are these guys drunk? And Peter stands up and what does he say? He says, they're not drunk like you think they are. But instead, this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In other words, this is from God. This is good. This isn't under the influence of alcohol. This is under the influence of the Spirit of God. And so it's different because it's actually confirming that this is from God. And that's why that's given. That's why throughout Jesus' life and throughout Jesus' ministry, he would do different things. And Scripture would say he did this in order to fulfill this prophecy. Or he went here or he did this because as it was written or as it was spoken by this prophet, this would happen. And you see it confirming this is indeed from God. So don't get anxious about what's happening in the world today. There have been evil dictators come and go in the world. There will be evil dictators rise and come and go. But the point is for us to be anchored in Jesus Christ no matter what may happen in the world around us. Amen? And to keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, not for us to get up in arms and get anxious about all those things. But when those things begin to happen, they're a confirmation to know, yes, Jesus told us this was happening. We're not surprised. We're not caught off guard. We can trust in him and we can be faithful because that's what it would have meant to the original hearers and that's what it means to us today. So as we look at that, let's keep that in mind. That's not my sermon at all, but I just wanted to go there and hopefully that'll that'll help you out a little bit. uh, So I think that that's good there. Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples not only who he is, but why he's come. He's saying, guys, listen, this is why I've come. I'm going to give my life. Like, I'm going to die. But don't worry, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't fit in our box. This doesn't fit in the way that we've interpreted and and expected the prophecies to roll out and go. And so they're having a hard time grasping because you would think that one would be like really amazed with the miracles you've seen, right? You'd think that someone would believe because they had seen, but Jesus said, no, it's actually a a wicked and perverse generation that demands a sign. So it's not the sign that's going to cause you to believe. It's the word that's going to stir faith and the signs follow the word. And Jesus is spending his time trying to preach, trying to teach, trying to communicate that the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. He's trying to tell his disciples, listen, the time is now for the kingdom of God is near. Get ready, prepare your hearts, repent and believe. And he's preaching this message. He's telling them, listen, guys, you see, I'm the Christ now. Peter, you see this. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against this church that's going to rise up. But can I tell you, first, I'm going to have to die. And then if you're going to follow me, guess what? You're going to have to die to yourself. It's actually you denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. That's what this is going to look like. This is going to be difficult. There's going to be suffering involved. There's going to be something that's going to have to be put to death. It's going to be your expectations are going to have to be put to death. Your ideology is going to have to be put to death. Your hopes of me acting and being a certain way to accomplish your own agenda that you have affixed to me and all the presuppositions that you've put on me are going to have to be put to death because I'm not going to come and do things the way that you think I'm going to do things. And I want you to still see that I am who I say I am, even when I don't fit your mold. 
And that's what Jesus is trying to help them see. And I believe by the Holy Spirit and the word to this day that Jesus is still trying to help us see that. Because a lot of us get the same idea about what Jesus is supposed to do that we miss what he's actually doing. We think Jesus operates this way because, well, I've experienced it this way or I've heard it this way or I think it should go this way. And God doesn't care what you think. God did not consult any of us on writing and authoring the scripture and describing his character, his nature to us. He didn't consult us. So it's our job to read, to trust, to grow in faith, and to believe he is who he says he is, and he's got the authority that we believe that he actually does have and that he truly has forgiven us. What a great thing to be forgiven. What a great thing to be reconciled and brought into right standing in the eyes of God. Amen, church? Here we see the big idea for today and the idea I believe Jesus is trying to communicate is we must die to ourselves, thus having nothing left to lose and everything to gain. Think about that for a minute. If you die to yourself, you don't have anything else to lose. I'm not holding on to things. I'm not holding on to notoriety. I'm not holding on to social status. I'm not holding on to, to other people's expectations. I'm not holding on to stuff. I'm not holding on to the things that the world wants to present as forms of security and comfort. No, I've died to all of that. I've said, Jesus, I believe you have authority over all of those things. And so therefore, the peace of God begins to wash over me in the middle of complete and total chaos. I can be at peace with God because I have that peace with him. Amen? You see, it's something that helps me not to get jerked to the right or to the left when the world goes crazy and we don't get caught up and tossed to and fro because we're anchored in the word and we're anchored in who Jesus is, believing that he's bigger than any of this stuff. And if it goes my way, great. And if it doesn't go my way, great, because I have Jesus, I have nothing to lose. (laughs) I have nothing to lose. So therefore, Jesus says, I have everything to gain. I have everything to gain. So I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be in fear, especially over those things that are beyond my control because I've surrendered and given it to Jesus. I've died to myself. Let's keep reading. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Stop right there. What? First of all, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Were they wearing name tags? I mean, I don't, you know, you, you just have these figures up here. I don't, did Jesus tell them later? Did they understand it to, to be some sort of prophetic fulfillment? I, I don't know how they knew. But they knew that it was Elijah and Moses. Elijah representing the prophets and, and being a prophet of God who never tasted death here on this earth, who was actually carried away in the chariot of fire. If you read that story, it's incredible. And then Moses, the one who God gave the law through, and the one who led the children of Israel, God's people, out of Egyptian slavery, over 400 years of slavery, led them out and and began them on their journey to the promised land. And God spoke to Moses. He gave him the law and he gave him his heart for the people and taught them how they were to live. And now Jesus is up there talking to them and Peter sees this. 
And Peter got knocked down just a little bit. Remember, he, he saw that Jesus was the Christ, and then he got called Satan. So he's like looking for a rebound, like he's looking for a redemption moment. And I believe Peter's thinking to himself, this is it. This is my redemption moment. He called me Satan just a little bit ago. And he sees Elijah and Moses, and he sees Jesus and transfigured before him to where he's just radiant and white. And he's like, oh my goodness, what is going on? And then when Jesus comes, he, Peter says to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, it is good we are here. <laughs> Peter's that guy that like doesn't like the awkward silence and doesn't know what to say. And so some people, when they don't know what to say, they don't say anything, not Peter. When Peter doesn't know what to say, he has to say something. And he said, it is good we are here. <laughs> and then he says this, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Scripture says, cause he didn't know what to say and they were terrified. <laughs> he didn't know what to say, so he says, it's good we're here. And uh, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to build three tents is what we're going to do. You ready, James? You ready, John? One for, one for each of you guys is what we're going to do. Um, yeah. And he was terrified in saying that because he didn't know what to say. So he just says this. And it reveals something about Peter's heart. It shows that he's still yet not getting it. What is Peter not getting? He's not getting who Jesus truly is because he's wanting to build tents for three people. He's put them all on the same level. You see, these three men are not on the same level. Jesus, who they saw as a man, now transfigured before them, and then appeared Elijah and Moses, and they weren't transfigured before him like Jesus was. Jesus was transfigured, and they missed that part, all they saw was their heroes and they saw the same idea that Jesus asked Peter earlier at Caesarea Philippi when he said, who do men say that I am? He said, well, some say you're like Elijah. You know, maybe you're just like one of the prophets. He said, who do you say I am? And then he sees it and then he doesn't see because he doesn't like this idea of Jesus dying. He doesn't like this idea of his champion, the Messiah in his mind, in his context, in his understanding. He doesn't like this idea of him dying and so he's still not yet grasping fully who Jesus is. And then this happens. Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's showing them who he is. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, they, he charged them not to tell anyone what they've seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So here he reminds them again of his death. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They still don't understand it because it's not fitting in their box. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. He's basically telling them, listen, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. He was that front runner. He was that person who did come. I'm telling you, this prophecy has been fulfilled. So listen, the next part of that prophecy is also about to be fulfilled. He's trying to help them to see who he is. And this further confirms his deity. And it further confirms that he is the fulfilled promise of God. Let's keep reading. 
And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast, cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some of the other gospels uh, recount this story by saying this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. So what's going on here in this moment? Because a lot of us would read this and go, oh, wow, this guy, he, he didn't have faith. And so he wasn't experiencing this. The disciples, they didn't have faith. Yeah, but the way I grew up, understanding faith and the way it was taught to me, which was not a healthy way for faith be, to be taught. And maybe you have the same understanding. So I want to help you today is that we kind of looked at faith like everyone has like this personal jar. And in this personal jar, there are like lines. And in those lines, if you can get your faith up to a certain line, then certain things can happen for you in life. And the people who met certain lines had better things happen for them in life. And so you're trying to figure out how can I fill up my jar so I don't have to have to, have to deal with any problems in life? How can I make sure that I get enough faith to where I don't have to deal with sickness? How can I make sure I get uh, enough faith to where I don't have to deal with stress and anxiety and fear? How can I make sure I get enough faith to where I can tap into riches and, and people liking me and having favor with people because I've got all of this faith that I personally have stored up and it's mine to use because it's my faith to make these things happen. And that's a really unhealthy way to look at faith. But we have to have faith. We, we need to grow in faith, but how, do, how we view faith is very important because Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But if I look at faith as my own personal little jar with all these little markers in it, then I am setting myself up to live with condemnation like you wouldn't believe. Because if something bad happens in my life, I'm just self-condemning going, I just didn't have enough faith. Oh my goodness, my jar wasn't full to the right notch. Or I didn't, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And we put all the onus on ourselves when really true faith, understand this, and I hope this sets you free. The only faith God requires of us is to have faith in his power. That's it. 
Let me say that again. The only faith God requires of us to have is faith in his power. The reason the disciples couldn't cast out the demon wasn't because they didn't have enough power themselves. The reason was is that they were doubting in the power of Jesus Christ. The reason that, that this man got corrected by Jesus was because, look at the context, look at the whole thing, because he didn't really believe Jesus could. When he came up to him, he said, if you can, Jesus. And what did Jesus say? What do you mean, if, if I can? Like, why did you even call me over? Like, are you just like, you know, playing Vegas here with me? You, you know, you just, you're rolling the dice with me? We play in the lottery? Is that what's going on here? Or do you really know who I am? And what it is at, at a larger view, if we really look at the 30,000 foot view of this thing, is the same exact question that Jesus asked Peter at Caesarea Philippi. The same exact thing that Jesus tried to tell his disciples later on over and over again. It's the same thing that happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you really believe that? Because if you believe that, then you should believe that he has the power, not you. You see, this thing isn't about you or up to you. This is, do we believe Jesus can? Do we know he can? Now, we have to pray according to his will and ask, Lord, if it be your will, we want you to do this and do that. But it's not a matter of, of, of whether it's his will or not. It's a matter of, do we believe he can even? Do we believe he cares? Do we believe that he has the power to do that? And in this moment, Jesus, he calls out the disciples' lack of faith. He says, how long am I going to have to be with you guys until you see who I am? How long am I going to have to keep walking with you until you finally realize who I am? Do you not know who's with you? Do you not remember the boat? Do you not remember the loaves and the fish? Do you not remember the miracles? Or do you still just think I'm a prophet like Elijah and Moses? Do you, not, do you not remember the voice that came from heaven? Do you not, like, who do you think I am? What do you think all of this is about? And they're still missing it because they haven't let go of their idea of who they want Jesus to be. And so they're doubting and limiting the power of God, not, not themselves. They're doubting what God can actually do because they don't fully see him for who he is. That's why Jesus said, this kind can come, only come out with more prayer. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when you pray, you're deepening your dependence on God. Therefore, you need to be a person who's deepening your dependence on God and praying more so that you can believe in the power of God. Not so you can fill up your jar to have enough power to get rid of that demon, but so you can believe that God actually can do this. That's the difference. And I hope that that helps you and sets you free because it takes the pressure off of us because a lot of us look to ourselves for answers and we need to stop that. Peter's looking to himself for answers. He even thinks he can correct Jesus. Jesus, stop talking about this dying thing. I don't like it. Stop talking about it. Even after all that he's seen, after all he's experienced, after all he's been taught over and over again, he still keeps relying on himself. He still keeps looking to himself. The disciples began looking to themselves. I mean, they're trying to heal this, this, this boy who's like, you know, snarling and foaming at the mouth. And they go to like, we've seen Jesus lay hands on people. Let's go lay hands on him, cast a demon out. Oh, he's a biter. Oh, let's step back. Oh, he's a biter. Okay, all right. Um, we've seen Jesus do things without having to be there. Hey, remember the time that, you know, he didn't have to touch the lepers? You remember that? Yeah, yeah, let's try it this way. All right, from afar, in Jesus' name. What are they doing? It's not their power. It's not their ability. They're doubting Jesus' ability. 
And that's the lack of faith. It's not the lack of not having enough in their jar. It's a lack of not thinking Jesus has the ability. It's saying, no, I need to see Jesus. That's why Jesus says, how long am I going to have to be with you guys, you generation that's not getting it, until you see, because I want you to see who I am so you can trust in my power. You see, the pathway to trusting God at all times is to deny and to die to ourselves daily. That's the pathway. The pathway to trusting God at all times, no matter what the highs are, what the lows are, what the fears that may come, whatever the doubts may come, it's to deny and die to ourselves daily. Let's keep reading verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days they will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. (laughs) Like, that's where we've gotten to with the disciples. He's still teaching them. He's even choosing to not go out and perform miracles because the priority is for him to teach his disciples. He didn't want to go out to the crowds. He wanted to spend time with his inner circle and teach them about why he's come because he wants them to see it. He wants them to get it. And so he actually was avoiding dealing with other people so he could just focus on this task because he wanted to teach. That's how important it was. And he's teaching them the same thing he's been teaching them. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. But when he's killed after three days, he'll rise. And they're like, do you understand that? No, not me. But I don't want to be the one who raises my hand in class. So I'm not going to ask. And nobody's asking any questions. And they're just like, what is he saying? They don't understand. And so here's where their minds go next. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Like when we were walking, what were you guys talking about? They kept silent (laughs) because they didn't want him to to know. For on the way, they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. What? So you guys don't have faith to fully believe who Jesus is and his power, and you're missing that because you've put all of your limitations and your boundaries around what you think he should be. And now your concern shifts to which one of you is the best? Like, I think you're missing the point. You see, but this is what we do as people. This just exposes the heart of humanity. It shows that, man, when we don't fully understand, we began looking to ourselves. And now I want to begin to crutch on myself again. Now we're having a conversation about who's the greatest. Let's talk about that for a minute. And then when Jesus asked, we knew it was wrong, but we still kind of wanted to know. Jesus, which one of us is the greatest? (laughs) And he sits down and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. First is first. That's how it works in our mind, but not in the value system of heaven. He said, first is actually last. And he said, those who are last will be first. He said, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He's using this nearby child as an illustration as he brings this child to him. And he's talking about the innocence of this child because children aren't coming into this by putting all these lenses on and all these expectations. A child just trusts. Jesus speaks, the child believes. The child's innocent. And that's the, the, the heart position. That's the humility 
That's the faith of a child that he's saying, actually, you want to know who gets it? This kid. And that would have been very frustrating for these men because in their culture, children were not looked upon as being important until they got to a certain age. And so under this point, the ancient civilization just didn't think very highly of children. They didn't look at them as significant in the culture, but once they became adults, now you matter. Now you're significant. Now your voice matters. And so Jesus bringing a child and saying that actually this kid gets it and you guys don't who've been walking with me, who have been hearing my teaching, seeing my miracles, you have to be like this child because this child understands and believes and has faith because it's pure, because it's innocent, because it doesn't have all of these other attachments to it and all this other framework that you're trying to control and manipulate. No, they just simply believe. And then (laughs) verse 38, John says to him, hey, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He wasn't a part of our club. And so we were like, hey, stop that. Shouldn't be doing that. Jesus says, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He's saying even someone who does something as simple as gives a drink of water to someone in my name. It's not just about casting out demons. He said it's as simple as giving someone a refreshing cup of drink who needs it in the name of Jesus because of Jesus, because you're doing this out of the love of Christ. He said he'll by no means lose his reward. So don't try to stop them. You see, they're still thinking they're special and significant because they're with Jesus, they're close to Jesus, and they don't think anybody else should be doing this. That's not fair. That's not right. This is exclusive for us. And Jesus is like, you're still thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought to, and you're missing this first shall be last and last shall be first thing. You're missing this idea because you're still caught up on yourselves. You're still trusting in your idea in your way, and you haven't denied yourself. You haven't died to yourself. You haven't taken up your cross. And he's still helping them to try to see this and get this and understand this. And then he begins to talk about the temptations of sin. And so in the context, he's speaking about temptations to think more highly of yourself than you should. And he's talking to them about this idea of being derailed because of sin. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than two, with, uh, with two hands uh, than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown in hell. Where, their worm, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, Jesus is not talking about bodily mutilation here, and he's not talking literally about literally cutting off your hand and plucking out your eye and doing those things. He's using this as hyperbole to help the disciples understand how weighty the issue of sin is. He's not talking about literally tying a millstone around someone's neck. He's telling them, listen, guys, if you don't stop thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought, if you don't stop giving into these temptations to sin and have these discussions about who's the greatest and start thinking about yourself and 
you're missing what I'm trying to do and you're doubting in me and you're not truly seeing who I am, what's going to happen is that you are actually going to be doing this, this thing where you're influencing other people, innocent people like children. And if you do that, you're going to influence them to doubt and them to be selfish and them to have the same idea and value system that you have, thus causing them to stumble in sin. He said, if you're living your life that way, man, it'd be better if you just tiled a millstone around your neck and you were drowned. It'd be better that, that if you just cut off your hand, if, if your hand's causing you to stumble. You don't want to be a stumbling block for other people, and you don't want to have things in your life that are causing you to stumble. And so he's trying to tell his disciples the severity of sin. And he's trying to show them their sinfulness and expose to them their need for a Savior, which is what Jesus actually has come to do. He's been preaching this whole time, repent, believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's telling them, repent over and over again. And now he's saying, stay away from this sin thing. Stay away from it. You guys keep getting trapped in this. And now you're going to influence other people and cause them to stumble. Stay away from this temptation. And then he says this. He, said, he, he says that everyone will be salted with fire. I'm not 100% sure what that means, but it'd make a great 80s heavy metal band name, like salted with fire. Salted with fire. Right? Like that's like an awesome name, salted with fire. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations about what salted with fire means. Uh, if you can look up all sorts of commentaries and all sorts of schools of thought on salted with fire. But what I think that it means in this context would be that he's talking about, listen, everything we do is going to be judged and only the stuff that is good will remain. Everything else is going to be salted with fire. It's going to be tested. We're going to be tested. We're going to have that uh, show what only is good can remain as we're purified. And he's telling them, I believe, that for us to stay in that place of effectiveness as salt remains salty, that we need to be people who are avoiding sin, staying away from these things when we're tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we should, or whether we're tempted with our hands or our eyes or whatever the case may be. He's trying to help his disciples and us today avoid this issue um, of sin to learn that we are free from it and that he has paid the price for us to be free from it. I think that this idea here is that the power of Christ strengthens us to endure like he endured. He overcame, and we too, by faith in his power, overcome. It's not our ability that helps us overcome temptation. It's rather Christ in us. Amen? Amen. You see, it's Christ in us that helps us to truly overcome and to move forward and to navigate these challenges that we have in life. Now, let's go over to chapter 10 as we're going to deal with a few issues that Jesus um, tackles here in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea by, and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let men not separate. And in the house, his disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
So we have to understand this in the context of their day to truly understand what's going on here because the issue of divorce in general was interpreted by two different rabbinical schools of thought. The two schools of thought were the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Now I want you to follow me here. You guys okay? Okay, all right. Just making sure you're still with me. All right. Hillel and Shammai were the two schools of thought concerning uh, this idea of divorce. Hillel was the more uh, kind of liberal school of thought. And they would, uh, like literally, you can go and research this, that they actually had these things written as an interpretation to this law concerning divorce. And by the way, the law concerning divorce came from Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 1 through 4. So if you want to make a note there, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4, you can go and read that and see the law that is being debated here. Because they're not trying to really discuss discover an answer from Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. Remember, that's their intent. They're trying to trap Jesus. So that's the whole point of this. And here's what they're doing. They're saying, basically, are you team Hillel or are you team Shammai? And that's what they're asking. Because team Hillel would actually is written that if your wife burns the bread, you can divorce her because you're displeased with her. So if she burns your toast... When she's making breakfast for you, you can divorce her. I am not even kidding. Now, the school of Shammai says that the only reason you can ever get divorced for any reason whatsoever is only adultery. And if you do anything else, you're wrong. So both of these are on extremes and they're painting this extreme picture because they're putting Jesus in a public forum to try to out him and try to embarrass him. They're not really wanting the answer to this question, which is why Jesus doesn't answer the question in the manner that they want him to. Because he asked them, what did Moses say? And so they basically presented, well, you know, we know what Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says, Jesus. And they kind of quote that. And Jesus said, the reason that Moses gave that in the first place was because of the hardness of your hearts. Because here's what was going on. People were getting divorced because of the most ridiculous reasons because they were ex exploiting this law for their own personal gain. The men, because of the lust in their heart and the hardness of their heart towards their wives, they would use this law as an excuse to divorce their wife for anything. Therefore, diluting the sacredness of marriage and saying, oh, well, she burnt my toast. I'm done with you, woman. I'm gonna find me a woman that won't burn my toast. And so literally, they would divorce over anything. The women were exploiting this law because every time that she would be given away to be married, her her parents would have to pay, uh, be paid a dowry by the groom. And so therefore, the women were using this as a way to divorce their husbands so they could make their family rich. And so basically, they would get married, you'd pay the dowry, they'd live with you, they'd go, well, I'm done with you because Deuteronomy 24, what are we going to do? I mean, you know. And so they would get divorced and she'd go marry another. Both men and women were exploiting this and people were getting divorced left and right, using this for their own advantage. But they were still thinking they were within the bounds of the law because they had come up with these different interpretations. And then you had this other group that said, no, only adultery is the, is the only way. And so you've got all of these things where people are putting condemnation in one camp and people are given extreme freedom to abuse this law and jump through all these loopholes in this other camp. And these Pharisees were saying, Jesus, what do you think? Pretty tricky, huh? Because in the context of this question, this is a much weightier question than what happens with this whole divorce thing. And so that's why Jesus answers them by bringing them back to the purpose of marriage. He says, listen, in the beginning, 
God made male and female. And then a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has put together, let no man separate. And then when the disciples get alone with Jesus, they're like, okay, so is it team Hillel or team Shammai? Like, you know, like tell us now that like we're alone. Because the disciples asked him about this again when they got alone, which meant they wanted to know. Like, which one is it? And Jesus is like, okay, guys. I need you to understand what matters here. He says, whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he, he, he deals with both the male and the female perspective here. And he's trying to tell them, listen, marriage is sacred. It's not to be taken lightly. You guys, are, you, you guys have culturally taken this thing way too light. You guys have culturally been looking through all of these, looking for all these loopholes, and you're trying to figure out how to, how to do this thing so you can take advantage of it. He says, no. He says, marriage is sacred, and we need to look at it as sacred. And we know, I know there's many people who have gone through the pain of divorce, and, and we know that the Scripture says God hates divorce, and he does. But can I help set you free this morning? That doesn't mean he hates people who have been divorced. Amen? Um, but we should all hate the idea of divorce because it hurts families. It, it, it breaks covenant. It hurts people. It, there's, there's, uh, there's not good that comes out of those situations. And, and we know that God can redeem and restore, and he does, and we're thankful for that. Um, but at the same time, marriage is supposed to be sacred, not something that's taken lightly, not something that's supposed to be looked for loopholes and easy, way, easy ways out of. Amen? And so this is the idea that Jesus is trying to reiterate here. He's like, guys, this is, this is not something that is to be taken lightly at all. There's more we could talk about that, but um, we can do that another time. Uh, we still have to get through some more text here. Uh, so let's move on to verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so Jesus looks around at his disciples and says, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but not with God, for, things are pos for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, Jesus, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last, will be, and, and the last first. Here we see this idea 
Jesus encountering this rich young man, and he's wanting to know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he's basically showing Jesus all his trophies of how good of a boy he's been, how good that he's kept the law. And he said, I've kept all those commandments. And Jesus said, well, good for you. Isn't that special? <laughs> and, and, and he said, well, then if you want to be perfect, go sell everything you have. Give to the poor and come follow me. What's Jesus saying in this moment? He's trying to expose what has the man's heart. He's trying to show, just like he was dealing with the issue of divorce earlier, just like he was dealing with the issue of the children coming to him earlier. He's trying to say, do you see who I am? Do you see my value? Do you see my worth? Are you going to trust in me that I have all authority? Are you going to follow my interpretation? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to trust in me? Do you see that I have all authority and all power? Or are you going to keep trusting in your own ways? Are you Are going to keep looking for loopholes? Are you going to keep trying to, to do things your way and, and make everything permissible for you that you want to do? You want to hang on to your wealth? You want to keep divorcing people over and over again? You want to keep living your life this way? He said, then you have to give up all of this. You have to die to yourself, as he said in Mark chapter 8. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And he's still communicating that message to us today, I believe, church. He wants us to understand this. Verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. And then taking the twelve again, he began to tell them once again the things that are going to happen. He says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. He's again telling them, about his death that is to come. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's pretty bold. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they're thinking, Well, if you are indeed the Son of God, if you are indeed the one who we want to believe that you are, then we feel like we've earned a spot. Me on the right, my bro on my left, on your left. Yeah, is that, that good? We thought we'd at least ask first, you know. Um, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism which I'm about to be baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they all began to be indignant toward James and John. And Jesus called to them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See what Jesus is trying to communicate to him? Guys, I'm going to die to, for your sin. You're going to have to die to yourself. And then they're like, well, we want to sit on your right. We want to sit on your left. And Jesus is like, are you able to bear the cup and drink from it that I'm about to drink from? He wasn't talking about communion. He was talking about the cup of death. And they're like, yeah, we're able to bear it. He says, are you 
able to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to go through? And they're like, yeah, he wasn't talking about water. He was talking about death. He was talking about dying and being raised from the day. He said, you are going to drink from the cup. You are going to experience this baptism. It will happen. It's going to happen. You are going to be able to do that. But you're just going to have to trust in me because it's not about you doing this because you're great. It's because you understand this idea of being a servant, dying to yourself, thinking less of yourself, not more of yourself, actually humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. He said, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served. And he's setting the tone, he's setting the example, but he came to give his life and to be a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's read these last few verses. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many people rebuked him and said, be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man and said to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do? What an interesting question. Same question that he asked James and John earlier. What do you want me to do for you? Now he's asking the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You see, church, we must die to ourselves, thus having nothing left to lose and everything to gain. James and John still thought of themselves, and they were comparing their own strength. They were comparing their own commitment. They were comparing their own ability. But Bartimaeus, Jesus was his only hope. Jesus was his only hope. He, he knew that Jesus was fully able because he cried out, Son of David. I know who you are. I'm, I'm putting my faith in who you are and in your ability. James and John were still going, who's better? Who gets to sit? Look at how good we are. Look at what all we're doing. Even Peter was like, we've given up everything for you, Jesus. We've left houses and, and, and mothers and fathers. We've left our career all for you. And Jesus says, don't you know I'm aware of that? Don't you remember earlier when I said everything that you would consider gain, you have to count as loss? For the sake of knowing Jesus, is Jesus not worth more than your career? Is Jesus not worth more than even your own family and your relatives and all of your associations and friendships? Is Jesus of not more worth? Because if we really knew who Jesus was, would we not forsake everything to follow him? Would we not completely trust him like Bartimaeus crying out in desperation knowing Jesus was his only hope? If we truly understood our sin and the temptations and things that we face, knowing that Jesus is the answer to our sin and he's the only hope and the only way, then we would put our faith and our trust in Jesus. I know you're able and I trust you because there's no greater miracle on earth that will ever happen than a sinner being saved and made in right standing with a holy and perfect God. There is no greater miracle, as wonderful as it was that Bar Bartimaeus saw, as wonderful as it was that the little boy, the demon came out of him, as wonderful as it was that dead people were raised, as wonderful as it was that sick people were healed, the greatest miracle of all is when a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But we have have to believe who he is and that he is able and he is willing and he saves us from ourselves. What's our response? 
to trust, to trust, amen? To die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him, to count everything else as lost. That's why our big idea, one more time, church, we must die to ourselves, thus having nothing left to lose and everything to gain. Lord, help us do this. We need your help, Jesus, because we can get reliant upon ourselves. We can miss seeing you for who you really are. We can doubt your power, all because we get this idea of who you're supposed to be and how you have to operate and how you have to do things. Lord, we submit all of that today. Forgive us, Lord, for our arrogance. Forgive us, Father, for where we have relied on ourselves. Forgive us for where we've even compared ourselves with other people, wondering who's better or who's greater. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have seen your glory, where we've experienced who you are, where we've read about who you are, where we've trusted, but then we've said, really? Can he really do that? Forgive us for our doubt. Help our unbelief. Help us, Father, to grow closer to you, to abandon all of our foolishness, our ideas, us looking for loopholes to justify our sin, us looking for the ideas of trying to hold on to wealth and to hold on to all these things that we feel like bring us security. Let us let those go and lay them at the foot of the cross. Let us trust you like Bartimaeus, who said, Jesus, we need your mercy. And let us cry out and deny ourselves daily and cry out, Jesus, we need your mercy. Help us do this, Lord. Amen.